boy, I feel like singing after hearing that good worship. But I can't sing. Oh, man, oh, man. But I can make a joyful noise. Whoa. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'll stop. I'll stop. But, Lord, we worship you. Um, And we thank God for technology, which allows us to connect with God and each other, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, Right now, I am preaching to an empty sanctuary. An empty sanctuary, but technically it's not empty. It may not have you here because you're at home. We want you to be safe this morning. Our parking lot was uh, still very icy. We believe um, it's going to melt this week with warmer temperatures coming. Uh, but I am accompanied by our pastors, uh, Brother Russell Kane, this morning. Uh, some of our security happened to be here. And uh, Brother Jackson is upstairs working the cameras and the sound and everything. So I need to take him to lunch after this. Thank God for Brother Terrence up there, too. We wanted to make sure we gave God the best we could give him this morning and you, um, his people, that we can serve you well. And so, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So not only are a few of us here, but the angels are here today. Hebrews talks about that, the angels accompanying God's people as we worship him. And not only that, the Lord is here forever, two or three. One, two, three, four. Uh, gathered together in his name. There he is in the midst. He is the omnipresent God. And um, Brother Jackson asked me this morning, um, how's it going to feel preaching to an empty sanctuary? Well, I thank God for experience. I've preached to empty sanctuaries before. During COVID, I I would come in here and preach. Um, I would also preach from my office. Doreen and I would go and preach from the park. She would film me. Winds would be blowing and all kind of things. Uh, but I'm also a, a street preacher. I uh, cut my teeth preaching and rapping on the streets of New York City, Baltimore, Chicago, Miami, all over the place. And um, so I'm not moved by who is there or who isn't there because I truly have an audience of one. Oh, man, I wish I could sing. It's a good thing I can't sing because I would be a singing preacher and I would sing every sermon. And that's why God didn't give that to me. Oh, my goodness. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. All right. Lord willing, I will see you Wednesday night as we begin programming again, for discipleship. We're here to grow as disciples of Jesus. So we have opportunities for all ages, as Pastor Felicia shared. So Wednesday, um, come on out. It's going to be better. The conditions will be better. We will not be providing a meal this week. Um, We're doing things a little bit differently. So eat before you come or prepare to eat afterwards. But 6.30, um, we will gather here in the sanctuary to begin, and then we'll disperse. All right, all right, all right. I'm excited, man. And today, I want to give context to a very familiar passage of Scripture. I want to give context. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, I will read verse 22. And it says, so Samuel said, 
has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. We've heard this passage many, many times. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, today, again, I want to give some context to this statement. And hopefully we can all walk away with some points of application that will enrich our lives for the Lord. So let's talk this morning in the midst of our series, Giving God More. Let's talk about more obedience, more obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for you. There is none like you. You alone are God. And beside you, there is no one else. Thank you, God, for how you love the world and you love the people of Strong Tower Bible Church. Thank you for loving us when we could not and would not have loved you first. But you came to us. You demonstrated love while we were tripping out. Jesus died for us. Thank you that today we are saved, made right with you, justified by grace, your goodness, your unmerited favor through faith. As my wife preached last week and that not of ourselves, salvation is a gift from you. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you that when we die, we live. Thank you, Lord God, that death has lost its sting. The grave has no victory because Jesus, the one who died for us, got up from the grave. So we thank you for life and life abundantly in Jesus. So I can only pray this prayer in the name that matters most, the name that's above every other name, the name that makes demons tremble, the name of Jesus, who is the door of heaven, who is the light of the world, who is the bread of life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We glorify you and we bless you. In your mighty name, I pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, my. Let me open up with a question. What do you do when God tells you to do something, but you don't do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you do when God tells you to do something and you don't do it? Now, some of us will repent when we don't do what God has called us to do. Some of us will say, Lord, I'm sorry. And I repent. Others of us will not repent. But what we'll do is we'll make excuses. What do you do when God tells you to do something and you don't do it? Some will repent and some will make excuses Oh, it reminds me of a song that was written in 1991 by a gentleman named Charlie Peacock. And this song was then remade by a group that I went to college with called DC Talk. And that song is entitled In the Light. And I believe Brother Charlie picks up the sentiment of what I'm trying to say in this introduction. And he says in the first lines of that song, I keep trying to find a life on my own apart from you. I am the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. Oh man, how many of y'all remember that song? 
You may not know Charlie's version, but you ought to know DC Talk's version. Matter of fact, this past week, I spoke at a college in Indiana, Taylor University. And when they introduced me, they're going through all my various accolades because, thank God, I have been able to do a few things for Jesus. But nobody really moved. Nobody said anything when they talked about where I went to school and what I've been able to do. They didn't even say much about my wife, who was just there, my children. But they mentioned that I had a book, one but not the same, and Toby Mack wrote the foreword. Then all of a sudden, hey! as soon as they said Toby Mack, my God. So anyway, thank you, Toby for remixing in the light, my God. But when I think about the king of excuses, I think of King Saul. King Saul, if you read his story in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel in particular, he was the king of excuses. But as we will see today, God expects more obedience from us and less excuses. He wants more obedience. That, that's the title of the message. More obedience, less excuses. So let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. All right. Samuel, the Bible says, also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Stop right there. Samuel is reminding Saul of his history. And if you go back to chapter 13, you can begin to read about how God used Saul to be the first king of Israel when the people decided to reject God himself as their king. And they wanted to be like all the other nations who had kings. And so they said, we want a king. And God said to Samuel, well, they're rejecting me, but go ahead and give them what they want. And so Samuel chooses or grabs Saul and he anoints Saul as king. Now, when Saul gets started, He's a good-looking guy. He's taller than everybody, but he's also very bashful and shy. So on the day of his coronation, they're looking for him. They can't even find him. Well, the Bible says he's out there hiding amongst the baggage. So he starts off very, very humble. But as he begins to grow in his role as king, he starts feeling himself and becomes less humble and more arrogant less dependent on God and more independent in how he leads the people. And so when we come to chapter 15, um, God is going to give him another opportunity to prove himself because he had sinned earlier, I believe in chapter 13, disobeyed a direct command, and now he's getting another shot. But I want somebody to hear this right now. Samuel says that God put you over his people. Now, the one who puts you over the people is still over you. So let's not miss that. Again, let's not get this twisted. Let's not think it's up to us or about us. Any authority we have is ascribed authority from the one who has all authority. So he says, you're over the people, but don't forget I'm over you. And that's when we start to get in trouble, when we forget who's over us. Then it goes on to say, Samuel says to him, now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Heed means obey. Take seriously what I'm about to say to you because God is about to speak through the vessel Samuel who was a prophet and judge. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. 
Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Oh, my goodness. So God speaks through Samuel. This is what the Lord says to you, Saul. I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. All right. Before I can even get into principles of what it means to give God more obedience, I've got to ask a question. How do we reconcile when God commands war and the annihilation of certain people groups in the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament who so loves the world? How do we reconcile what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and what we see in the New Testament in the age of favor, in the age of grace? How do we reconcile? How, how do we make sense of the devastation and genocide we see occurring not only in the Old Testament, but right here, right now in our day and time when we look at what's going on between Israel and the Palestinians? How do we make sense of this? I'm here to tell you there is not an easy answer. And anyone who suggests to you that there is an easy answer, they're lying. Um, they're trying to make complex biblical information, complex current day political information overly simplistic. And whenever somebody's trying to make complex things overly simplistic, they usually have a slant or a bias that they're working with and not true objectivity. Oh, this is not easy. You see, the God who is merciful is also holy. The God who is full of love is also a God who is just. And how do we reconcile when it seems like God's attributes don't reconcile with each other? But theologically, we need to understand that God is full of all of his attributes all of the time. So the God who is just is always just, and the God who is merciful is always merciful. They may not reconcile in our mind, but they reconcile in the person and nature of God. I've always said a Strong Tower, I do not want a God that I can figure out and that I can fully define, because that's usually a God that I've created after my own image, and I don't even understand myself most days. So God is God. He defines who he is, and we try to figure it out. But here's what I want to encourage you with. For those of you who say, I don't want to follow God, because how can a merciful God allow or even command in the Old Testament the genocide of certain people groups? You say, I don't like that kind of God. But let me throw this at you. At the cross of Jesus, you see the holiness of God interacting with the mercy of God. At the cross of Jesus, you see the justice or the judgment of God interacting with the grace of God. How so? Because God poured out, poured out wrath on Jesus on the cross because he's holy. He must punish sin, which means he's just. 
but he's also full of mercy, grace, and love. And through Jesus, we see mercy, grace, and love. So on the cross, God got justice through Jesus, dying in our place as the sacrificial lamb who never sinned. But also on the cross, we got mercy, grace, love, and hope because of what Jesus did. Those things are working together on the cross. And it doesn't make full sense to us, but it's true. And so when we come to these kind of passages, when God says, kill everybody, including the children, Lord, how do we reconcile that? Well, when God sanctioned genocide in the days of the Old Testament, he did so because he is sovereign, which means he's in control, and he is just. And apparently, which means he don't answer to us. So, so let, me, let me throw that in real quick. I know as Americans, we think everybody owes us an explanation, but, but God does not owe us an explanation on why he does what he does when he does it, with whom he does it with. This is where we must trust him because, again, his holiness and justice is balanced with his love, mercy, and grace. <clears throat> Help us, God. But apparently with the Amalekites, they were reaping what they had sown in past generations. Now, we're not going to read this today, but before Saul comes down on the Amalekites, he tells the Kenites to leave because the Kenites were migrating with the Amalekites. The Kenites were descendants of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. These were Afro-Asiatic folks who were hanging out there amidst the Amalekites. Now, uh, the, the Kenites, we're told, were very kind to the children of Israel when they left Egypt and they took care of the, the, the children of Israel. But the Amalekites, they attacked the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, I won't be able to read it this morning, but you read it. I hope you're taking notes so you'll go back and look at this. God is reminding Moses when he gives them the law the second time, Deuteronomy is the second law, because the, the generation under Joshua is about to go into the promised land, and he's reminding them not only of the law, but the history that they went through for 40 years all up in that wilderness. And he says, remember what the Amalekites did to you when y'all first came out of Egypt. What did they do? God said, they not only attacked my people from the rear but they also attacked those who were weak, those who were struggling, the stragglers in the group. So rather than coming face to face with Israel, they came and attacked them from behind and came against the weakest of the weak. And God says, I'm not going to forget that. And he said, when you get established in the land, then we're going to deal with the Amalekites. But here's the deal. It took them time to get established in the land, which means it gave time for the Amalekites to repent. God has mercy on people and nations who repent, but they did not repent. And it's suggested by many scholars that their evil acts grew worse and worse. And so God, after now allowing Israel to have a king, says to Saul, I want you to do what I said to Moses in Deuteronomy 25. What's going to happen to this group of people? Wipe them out. So it's a clear command. It's a clear command. But let me also add this. But since I don't believe there are prophets walking the earth today in the caliber of Samuel, 
in the caliber of Jeremiah who can say, God said, kill and destroy those people. I find it hard to support any nation, any person, any political persuasion or religious group that feels justified in a nation going beyond its right to defend itself to mercilessly kill innocent men, women, and children. What am I saying? Unless God is speaking, telling a nation, because, you know, Israel, although they just elected a king, they were a theocracy under Yahweh. And so modern-day Israel is not a theocracy under Yahweh. Very, very secular. Uh, Okay, stay with me now, stay with me. I'm just trying to say that if people rise up today saying, God said kill those people, even if it's the nation of Israel, mm, now, unless a prophet says it, and unless a nation truly is a theocracy. mm, So so how do I get out of this quicksand? This is where I get out of this quicksand. When a so-called Christian nation doesn't call for a ceasefire, because we we the so-called Christian nation, that's backing Israel, and we're sending billions of dollars to Israel along with uh, uh, all kinds of weaponry. When President Biden does not call for a ceasefire, I'm like, what kind of Christ leads this so-called Christian nation? Because the Christ of the Sermon on the Mount, we can't forget that one too, right? Who talks about having mercy, loving your enemies, not annihilating them and wiping them out. Again, this is not the Old Testament now. This is the age of grace. And every nation has a right to defend itself, but does every nation have a right to annihilate innocent people? You see, as a person who is a descendant of oppressed people, it's hard for me to watch oppression happening, not just here, but in other places around the world. So I'm going to use my mouth and God's pulpit to speak up because Israel does not get a pass simply because they're Israel. Can't reconcile all this, but watch out for people with, again, easy answers, political bents and persuasions to justify genocide. Ceasefire. We're praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, send a ceasefire. What's so wrong with that? We can support Israel and also hold Israel accountable to do what is right. Oh, yeah, I won't get a lot of speaking engagements, but I'm not looking for speaking engagements. But let's move on. All that was for free. Now let's get into this text here. Verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havalia all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. All right, all right. So we see him doing some of what God said. Now he's starting to slip. He's tripping. So, so I want you to listen carefully, Strong Tower. I want you to listen for characteristics of people who become disobedient, mainly of religious, spiritual, or saved Christian people like you and like me, when we become disobedient, we're going to do the stuff we see going on with Saul in these verses to come. So I want you to listen for this, okay? So let's start off with this one right here. 
Number one, disobedient people usually have a but of justification. They have a but of justification. So I'm going to reverse now. But wait a minute. He attacks the Amalekites. Obedient, right? But then he takes Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Disobedience. We come to verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So a disobedient person, number one, usually will have a but of justification. I know what God said, but. I know God said, love my neighbor as myself, uh, which is the second and greatest commandment. But uh, I love the second amendment to the Constitution, which talks about my guns, then I do the second commandment of loving my neighbor. Love my neighbor, but I have every right to kill my neighbor. Huh? Uh, uh, God said do this, but I'm going to do that. It, it starts with a but. And if Elder Sherman were here, he would talk about how he talks to the men. You were doing good till you put your butt in the way. Get your butt out of the way. Here it's B-U-T, but at home it's that B-U-double-T. Get the butt out the way. That, that's how it starts. But as if God is going to change his word for you. I'm going to justify disobedience because I'm special. Clear word, but I'm going to do what I think needs to be done. But here's another thing. Disobedient people have a negative influence on other people. Because it says in verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag. All they're doing is following their leader. Saul is being disobedient, and now the people are being disobedient. And so when you are disobedient, you will influence other people. It's just not you, but it's people that you have influence over. That's what a leader is, a person of influence. But the issue is, what kind of um, a spirit are you influencing people with? Is it a spirit of obedience or a spirit of disobedience? Now, later, Saul is going to blame the people. We'll talk about that in a minute when Samuel confronts him. And he's going to say, you know how these people are. Sound a lot like Aaron back in the day, right? This is what the people do. No, I thought you were the leader. You set the tempo, you set the spirit, they'll follow your example. And again, if we go back a little bit early to some of the other chapters, when you declared a fast saying, don't nobody eat, nobody ate. They listened to you. And when your son didn't get the word that you had declared a fast and he ate some honey, Jonathan, you were ready to kill your son for disobeying you. So you know how to lead people when you want to lead them, Saul. But in this case, compromise is on the leader. And when the leader compromises, expect the people to compromise. And so this is called influence or leaven. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little compromise affects the whole company, affects the whole house, affects the whole church, especially when that compromise is from leadership. 
Because other folks will feel like if my leader compromises and doesn't obey God, then I can compromise and not obey God, which is why leaders have to be above reproach, not sinless. But man, your life ought to be on point where you're living for God and people know that you have a heart after God. My, my, my. Oh, yeah, I love this. I love this. A negative influence can contaminate you without you even knowing you've been contaminated. What are you passing on to people? What are you passing down to people? What kind of leaven, what kind of disobedient spirit are you passing on to people? Your children go to school and talk nasty to teachers because they hear you talking nasty to authority. What are you passing on? But another thing from the text, disobedient people don't feel the pain their bad choices had on other people. Disobedient, they don't feel the pain and the devastation. Look at verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So Saul disobeys God, doesn't destroy Agag the king, takes the animals and stuff. And we're going to find out later why he said he took that stuff. But God says, I regret that I made this dude king. Now, when we talk about God regretting, y'all, this is not like God changed his mind like you and I change our mind. No, God is using anthropomorphic language for us to understand a little bit of his heart. Anthropomorphic language is when you try to explain the holy God in human form, in human terms. When it says God had regret, that means God was grieving with what he saw going on with Saul. And then the Bible says, not only was God regretting, but it says Samuel was grieving and he crying out all night. So here's my question. God is, has regrets. Samuel is grieved and crying out all night. What's Saul doing? What's Saul doing? Well, let's go on and read. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel saying Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself and he has gone on around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. They crying. God has regrets. Samuel, Saul rather, leaves the area, goes to Gilgal and builds a monument to himself. Disobedient people don't understand uh, uh, how much they hurt other people. They're going on about their life, doing their thing. But those of us who are around them, who are devastated by their decisions, we're hurting. We're struggling. We're grieving. What are they doing? Building monuments to themselves. Oh, my goodness. Saul said, let, and matter of fact, let me go on to Gilgal. Because that'll make it a little bit tougher for this old prophet to find me. Because I know I'm tripping. So in order for him to find me, he, he really, this old dude got to search for me. Which goes into the next point. Disobedient people deceive themselves into thinking they've obeyed God. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul, finally got a hold of him. And Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So disobedient people deceive themselves into thinking they've obeyed God. Self-deception is the worst kind of deception. 
And the reason why he's initiating the conversation is because he knows he's out in left field. He knows he's wrong. He knows Samuel is about to tighten him up, but he's trying to, you know, set the course of the conversation by saying, as the king, I've obeyed God. And now we're going to find out if the prophet is going to be a puppet to the king or if he's going to be a mouthpiece of God. And there are a lot of pastors when they get around uh, politicians. They're afraid to speak up to these people. They, they, they start, you know, losing their backbone and, and all that stuff. Now, 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 now you, you don't know who you're dealing with, Saul. Samuel ain't playing. Now, his sons may have been jacked up, but Samuel was very clear about where to stand with God. So, so what is going to happen? We got to read on because it goes to the next thing. Disobedient people deflect personal responsibility. Because watch this. This is kind of funny. I, I see this in my mind here. So he says, I performed the commandment of the Lord. Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? You're talking about you obeyed, which was to destroy everything, but I'm hearing like it's a farm out here. Bad, move, bad. And you're talking about I performed what God said do. I obey God. No, you did not. And so when Samuel comes to him and challenges him here, the Bible says in verse 15, and Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So he doesn't take personal responsibility. He says, I've obeyed God. What are all these animals doing out here? Well, they kept them. So a disobedient person will not point thumbs. They're quick to point fingers. They're quick to deflect. It's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. And man, write this down. If it's never, if it's always somebody else's fault, when is it going to be your fault? If it's always somebody else's fault, if you always point now here and you don't do this, when is it going to be your fault? And if it's never your fault, that means you'll never get right. You'll never get right if it's never your fault. Oh, my goodness. I got to keep going. All kind of things coming to my mind right now. I got to keep rolling. Another thing we see in this passage is disobedient people will disguise their impure motives with religiosity. Because the brother said... um, They did this and they did that, but we're doing all this to make a sacrifice to God. Oh, that sounds so spiritual. Oh, that sounds so deep. Oh, we're here to give God a sacrifice. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God none of the time. And I believe Samuel, the prophet, is sitting there looking at this brother like uh, a Hebrew, please. <laughs> Y'all, Hebrew, please. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you are deflecting, man. God is more interested in living sacrifices than he is in dead sacrifices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we want religion. God wants obedience. We're not going to fool God with religious activity, thinking that he's going to overlook our disobedience because we're slaying a sheep, a lamb, a bull. We're going to church. We're paying our tithes. 
But there's some stuff God been saying do, like forgive this person. There's stuff God's been saying do, like share the gospel. And we've been disobedient. And we think that we can fool God with religion. Oh, can I read to you what the man after God's own heart said about this? This is what he said in Psalm 51. After he had sinned with Bathsheba, killed her husband, Nathan comes to him, confronts him. He repents in his sin, of his sin. And he says in verse 16 of Psalm 51, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. So, so watch this now. God is the one who set up this system of sacrifice. But you were supposed to do it the right way from a right heart. But if your heart isn't right, don't try to bring God the sacrifice and think that he won't see where your heart is. Where you think you can fool God because you're slaying animals before him like Saul was talking about doing. Man, you weren't getting that stuff to give God a sacrifice. You were getting that stuff because it was the best stuff. You, you killed the stuff that was worthless. You killed the, the, the sheep that was blind in one eye and had three legs. You, you killed them. But them good-looking ones you kept talking about you're going to give it to God. No, you're going to take that home. And you didn't kill Agag because he was going to be your living trophy to walk back into Israel and say, look what I've done. Look at me as opposed to look at God. I got a trophy, the king of the Amalekites. So this isn't about God. This was about Saul. Verse 17, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Yeah. So God doesn't want religion. He wants our hearts. That's why he would say, Jesus would say, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Where's your heart? We may look at religious activity and say, man, that person is deep. And God looks at that person with all the religious activity and says, man, that person is disobedient and shallow. I like how David then said in verse 19, after he has repented, he says, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. So I'm not going to try to give you this and not repent. No, I'm going to repent. Now I'm going to give you religious activity as a demonstration of my faith towards you. We can't fool God and we shouldn't try. Seven, disobedient people think partial obedience is full obedience. In verse 15, that brother says, uh, uh, I did obey the Lord. Let me read this again. Let me get this right. Verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord and the rest we have utterly destroyed. In other words, we obey. no. That was partial obedience. You killed some of the stuff, but not all of the stuff. And mama would say, partial obedience is still disobedience. You don't believe? Or right, let me go into your house. If you grew up like I grew up, my mother would say, clean this kitchen. And have it clean before I get back home. And cleaning the kitchen involves more than washing the dishes. So if I just say I'm going to wash the dishes and not sweep the floor, not wipe the table, not put the dishes up, then I technically have not cleaned the kitchen, which means I technically have not obeyed. But if I just do partial and say I'm just going to wash, the, wash these dishes and then go watch the game, and then mama comes home and looks at the kitchen and says, I thought I told you to clean this kitchen. 
And I say, I did clean the kitchen. I washed the dishes, but did you dry them and put them up? Uh, did you sweep the floor? Did you wipe the tables down? Because if you didn't do it all, you disobeyed. And that's how Saul was. Uh, I killed some of the stuff. Partial obedience is full disobedience. Oh, man. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. I'm almost done. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. What arrogance. So Samuel said, okay, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but there it is again, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people, more deflecting, took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord our God in Gilgal. Then the Bible says in verse 22, so Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Well, disobedient people are not only religious people, they're rebellious people. Because in verse uh, 23, Samuel says, for rebellion is this the sin of witchcraft, rebellion. You were not only disobedient, but you were rebellious, rebellious. Oh my, rebellion, what is it? It is an intentional act of open resistance and voluntary defiance against established authority and legitimate authority. Let me read it again. Rebellion is an intentional act of open resistance and voluntary defiance against established authority and legitimate authority. Who's the authority? God. Saul went against established authority and legitimate authority. We just celebrated Dr. King Day. And when established authority is not righteous or legitimate, there is a time to dis. Uh, uh, respect or rather disregard uh, uh, laws in order to peacefully petition against them uh, uh, so that there can be a change towards more just laws. Because some would say what King did during the civil rights movement, that was rebellion. No, that was resistance against unrighteous laws. But in this case with Saul, you were turning against resisting established authority, legitimate authority, and righteous authority to do your thing. Rebellion. And when he says for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, now he's bringing in the devil. Witchcraft, uh, magic, uh, spells, the demonic realm. Why is he doing that? Well, who was the first one to rebel against God? Satan was. So when a person disobedience which moves into rebellion, when they start doing that, they are acting like the devil who rebelled against legitimate, established, and righteous authority 
to try to perform a coup against God and failed. And so Samuel is saying, my brother, you have moved into the realm of witchcraft, of demonic activity. So when we read later in chapter 16, when Saul, rather than repenting, he's miserable. There are evil spirits sent from God that are tormenting him. In his disobedience, he opened himself up to the devil. Again, I love Elder Sherman. I love to quote him. And we, we, he says this thing where sin takes us further than we want to go, and we end up paying consequences we never thought we would pay. Something like that. I'm remixing you, Elder Sherman. But when we're disobeying, we don't see what's on the other side of disobedience, and it can lead us into devastation. So, so what needs to happen? What needs to happen? There needs to be repentance. Disobedient people will only come clean after they've been caught. But even then, they won't repent. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. Homeboy, why don't you say that up front? You're starting off talking about, I've done it. I've obeyed God. No, you haven't. But now after Samuel been talking to you, finally, because you've been exposed, you've been caught, you say, okay, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So there he goes again, blame shifting. And he says, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So he only comes clean after he's been caught, but he does not repent. Pastor Chris, how do you know he hasn't repented? Because if he had repented, he would have said, let me take care of King Agag now when I didn't take care of him before. But he didn't do that. Who ends up killing King Agag? Well, according to the text, Samuel kills Agag. If Saul had repented, he would have said, man, let's sacrifice all these animals right now to God. Or let's slay them all now because God never asked for them to be sacrificed to him. Let me be obedient now. Because if somebody repents and I'm done. You never have to wonder if they've repented. You're going to know they've repented because it's going to show in their actions. All right, Pastor Chris. Hey, man, I'm new to this Christian thing. But what is repentance, man? If this guy didn't repent, what is repentance? Repentance is simple, but it's hard to do. Because it deals with the heart. It's been defined as a change of mind. That leads to a change of heart. That leads to change of actions. Change of mind because God's word has impacted your mind. God's word has impacted your heart. So you start thinking differently. So you were thinking this way, which was your way. Now you hear from God and you're going to think God's way. But you're not just going to think differently. It's going to impact your heart to feel differently, which is going to lead to different action. Repentance is a change of mind change of heart that leads to a change of action. Had Saul repented, he would have said, you know what? My mind has been hit by the word of God. My heart has been touched. My actions are different. Let me go ahead and kill what I should have killed and who I should have killed. Instead, will you go to church with me, Samuel, so that everybody will think I look religious? He's still saving face when he should have fell on his face. That's how a lot of folk do at church. Some folks, rather than repenting, they'll change their church membership. 
Rather than having a change of heart and a change of mind, you're going to have a change of churches because you won't repent. Repenting is like driving down a highway and you know you're going in the wrong direction. You're like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. Only a fool will carry on in the wrong direction. Somebody with some sense will do a U-turn. They're going to get off, turn around, and come back the other way. But if you're riding down the street going the wrong way, talking about, I know I'm going in the wrong way, but you don't change, you haven't repented. Repentance is when you make a U-turn. U-turn. Y-O-U. U-turn. Because when you turn, we'll know that there's been repentance. But if there's no change in how you're doing things, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, with a change. Saul never repents. He never changes. He gets sorry from time to time, but that's not enough. Repent. So if I'm going to give God more obedience, it begins with me giving God more Repentance. Matter of fact, obedience begins with repentance. I'm not going to always obey, but I can always repent. I'm not going to always obey, but man, when I disobey, I can always repent and turn and say, God, have mercy on me. And a person like David, who said to have a heart after God's own heart, but homeboy was heartless so, so much. What was the big deal? He knew how to repent. Oh, God. Whereas Saul, I heard a pastor, pastor, uh, I can't remember his name. He's a, a guy that knows Fred Hammond, a friend of mine, uh, Pastor YPJ. He said, uh, when Saul got confronted with his sin and he finally said, I've sinned, he was more concerned, Lord, don't take the kingdom from me. But when David sinned, and was confronted by Nathan, he said, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. When you've repented, man, you don't care about this stuff. You just care about you and God. Strong tower. I ain't preaching here for my health. I'm preaching here because I want to see some yokes broken, some chains broken, some, some behavior change because you've had a heart change before God. Some of us are too busy playing church when God is saying, repent and get right. I want you to obey me. And if that means get up and go and apologize to somebody, if that means to get up and go and give what God's told you to get, stop playing this thing. Yeah. We don't have time for this, man. New year, new you. How about a U-turn? You're living with people right now. You got bitterness towards, and you feel justified in being bitter towards people in your house. That's not God. We're talking about a war over there in Gaza. What about the war in your heart and in your mind and in your house? Turn, turn. Obey God. Forgive. Love. Stop slandering folks. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Obey. It's better than sacrifice. Saul didn't learn the lesson. Will you? Will I? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that these things were written in the word for our example, for our warning. Lord, I don't want to be like Saul. Yes, I want to be like Jesus. 
But I thank you for David's example, a broken man. As we'll see more next week, how he worshiped you. He gave you more worship, more praise, more glory. But it came from a heart of repentance. Minister to your body. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're not bound to a location, that you're not bound to a building. But I pray that your people will open up and let you have free examination of what's going on in the waiting rooms of their lives. That you'll speak to them afresh and that they will hear you and not harden their hearts, but obey you and do what you've called them to do. We love you and we thank you for an opportunity to worship on this chilly morning. But thank you for warming our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. My wife, my bride, would you come and give us final words? Wow, church. Can the church say ouch? <laughs> I tell you, it was good to hear the word of God. And I want to close today by having you bow your head with me. And I'm going to read the last verses of a psalm written by David, who's already been quoted today, a man after God's own heart, who was always asking God to search his heart. You know, some of us may go, well, I, I don't think I have any blatant, like, rebellion in my heart. And, or some of us religious folks might be thinking about somebody else. Yeah, they need to get themselves right. But I'm going to invite you as I am asking God to search my heart, okay, to focus on ourselves, not to focus on that other person that we think needs to get themselves right, but to have God search our hearts, okay? So where you are, bow your heads with me. I'm going to read these final verses from Psalms 19 as our benediction, and I invite you to say them in your heart with me. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, Amen. Have a blessed Sunday. Stay warm. Stay safe. We look forward to seeing you in person on Wednesday night and then next Sunday. God bless you.